Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by Toyin Oji Odatola. Toyin is a Nigerian-American visual artist known for her multimedia drawings and works on paper. Using black pen ink, charcoal, and pastel, she explores the themes of socioeconomic inequality, queer and gender theory, and notions of blackness as a visual symbol. Of course, she does a whole lot more than that, and has for over a decade now. As you'll see, the people in her work often appear to have just done something or just about to do something. They're not in transit, but in transition, unable to be pinned down, located, understood, or defined. Toyin says, that's my way of fighting that expectation that people have about blackness, about black people and black stories. To see the work discussed in this episode, visit TalkEasyPod.com or simply click the link provided in the description. You can do that on your phone. Just scroll down a little bit. You'll see a link. Click that. The virtual gallery accompanies this episode, starting around the 35-minute mark. We hope you check it out. My sense is that upon hearing Toyin, you'll want to do so. 
Most of the pieces in this conversation come from her new seminal monograph, The Umo Eze Amara Clan and the House of Oba Femi, which is now available to purchase. But before we get to the work itself, we unpack her story, moving from Nigeria to America at age five, how she found her way in the world growing up in the South, the influences of Zadie Smith, Elizabeth Payton, and Toni Morrison, what it really means to be a visual artist in 2021, and a whole lot more. For now, here is Toyin O.G. Odatola. Toyin. Yes, sir. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. How does uh, your mother feel <laughs> with you being here? She's always excited whenever I get to have in-depth conversations. And she likes programs like this mm-hmm. that are really educational and also about humanity. So she's going to be lit. I think you're the first guest to ever come in here and say, my mom loves your show. My mom really likes this show. She likes everything that I show. I was like, you should check this out. She's like, okay, okay. And she's really good with that. She'll like go back and do to the dark catalogs, like the dark parts of something. And she liked it. Yeah. Let me ask you, a few days ago, you posted something on Instagram. Yeah. And I felt like if we didn't start there, we may not be able to move forward. <laughs> right, right. It struck me as potentially an interesting precursor into the work itself, but also in me trying to understand where you come from. Yeah. I mean, the opening line This was written Sunday, August 8th, 2021. I learned from my parents not to trust memories. If they are not useful, as in if they are not a warning, they must be disregarded. What were you trying to unpack in these? I mean, I've been reading a lot of amazing memoirs lately. I was just always struck by how detailed they were about streets and, you know, parks. And I don't have that. Like, when I look back on my time coming here when I was five, it's a blur from, like, five to nine and then nine to, like, 14. It's just snippets. It feels very much like memory is unreliable. It's always been unreliable to me. And so that was what that came from, is that I I don't have an anchor. I don't have anything to say who I am, what I really am, aside from what other people have told me, you know, like family and friends and stuff. So the thing that has been, for me, what memory is, is useful. Can I learn from it? Which is a very immigrant way of looking at things. And so that was what memory, how memory functions in in my life. It's very sad. It's like I, I can't really give you specificity, which is why I invent in my work. It's like that's my way of having specificity. That's what I meant by a lie. It's a lie to cling to because art is illusion. So you lie. Drawing and creating stories was my way of giving myself something to cling to and even though it's invention, it's very real to me because it's an interiority that I'm exploring in the work. You said to learn from memory is a very immigrant idea. What does that mean exactly? I guess I might be speaking very specifically from my experience, but, you know, the Nigerian household I grew up in was like, do it right. You know, if you messed up, better learn for it quickly because you're not going to get another chance. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is it. I can see a lot of anxiety coming up. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's like parents who are like, you know, my parents are actually amazing. I mean, the older you get, the more you appreciate them. But as a kid, I was terrified. I mean, there'd be moments where I'd do something so outlandish and my parents were like, do you want to live? Do you want to live your life? Because you could die tomorrow. Really could die tomorrow. And it wasn't like now, of course, you're thinking that's crazy to say to a child. But I think what they were saying is like, we don't have anything here to back up. There's no net for us here. We left that. So if you start fucking up, we cannot help you. We don't know this country that well. So figure out where you can stand. And like, you got to do that on your own. We can help you as much as we can. But from there, you can take risks, but we're going to be real with you. It's not going to end well. <laughs> for people like us to take risks. So you got to do the safe route. You got to keep it, you know, keep afloat. Before we get to the work you're talking about, I want people to understand how you got there and where you came from. Mm-hmm. You're born in 1985 in Ife, Nigeria. At age five, you and your parents come to America, settling in the Bay Area. By age 10, you moved to Huntsville, Alabama. From the onset, you've said that I didn't speak English well. When I finally conquered the language, it came at a price. I lost my native Yoruba tongue, and in doing so, severed a personal link to my homeland. From that moment, I moved through the world as if I was trespassing, never certain of my place, and always feeling as if I was an imposter. Most of that is correct. We came in 1990, I was five, and it was my mother me and my younger brother, Adiola, at the time. My father was already in the Bay because he had to leave early. The economy in Nigeria had tanked by that point. I mean, it was really desperate times. And again, memory is unreliable. So I have these like moments where I see just poverty, just abject poverty. And I remember one night my mom wakes up at like five in the morning. It's like, we're going to America. And like in your mind as a kid, you're thinking Superman, you're thinking beaches, LA. So I was like, I'm going to pack some bathing suits. You know what I mean? Like my mom was just like, oh my God, this child. We fly over and we meet up with our dad in Oakland and we were staying in a house with this other woman and her family. So we were living on the top floor. So from the get of being in the U.S., we... We were poor, you know, like my dad was working multiple jobs, my mom the same. And then we finally got a chance, my dad did, of a professorship in Alabama when I was nine. And that was the first time I felt like I can't go through this again. I already lost Yoruba. I've already lost any memory or of my past self in Africa. Now we're moving to Alabama. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle this. What else am I going to lose? So I took to drawing Even as a kid, I knew I had to preserve something of myself. And so that was my salvation in a way. That line you wrote, I moved through the world as if I was trespassing. I think the moment I landed in the States, there was a look you get as an immigrant. I can't describe it. It's like disgust almost. It's like, ugh, you know, another one of you guys. You know what I mean? It's just like, and when you're young and you, you feel that so deeply, you're like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't know I was such a problem and you don't know because you just arrived so then also you're five at that point <laughs> exactly so I just remember like seeing the way my mother was treated you know carrying my brother and me you know and just the way that the customs agents were like ugh, another half you know like what are they gonna do take jobs or whatever and they don't know us they just have this idea of what we are and that always stayed with me and it, it was like it happened in parts of Alabama it happened in parts of California it was just this feeling of like you should be so lucky to be here, you know. As a five-year-old, you're like, well, okay, I guess I got to be a good person because everyone already thinks I'm shit. 
So that's what I meant by the imposter. I'm trespassing. I felt like every ground I occupy felt like, how do I describe it? I had to apologize to be there. It's a feeling that's deeply traumatic. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry I'm here. That kind of feeling. And it stayed with me since I was five. Did it get worse in high school? Yeah, it got worse as I got older, which is why I just leaned more into art because it's like the one place I felt like I could do anything. Anyone can enter that space. Like, if you're skillful and you're good, that's yours. Like, you can make me feel like shit in every other context, but if I'm drawing, I'm going to flex and I'm going to be so good. No one else can do this thing but me. So I earned that space. When did you first discover that you could flex? (laughs) I mean, I think it's just the magic of seeing like something and then translating it on paper. Like that was wild to me. Like, you know, look at a cup and then I drew the cup. It's like, what? That's crazy. You know, but it's simple like that. And, you know, there are people nowadays in the age of everyone is an artist. Just fine. Or you could just be an accountant. It's fine. It doesn't seem like it's fine for you. (laughs) I just think it's funny. I just think that some people want to do things that I think they have an impression of. Like, just because someone can draw a cup, that's fine. That's actually really beautiful. To create something, you should hold on to the magic of that as it is and stop making it bigger than it needs to be. There's something very precious about that. The fact that you can use your faculties to create an illusion in another surface or in another place and have a stranger look at that and completely understand. That's a beautiful skill to have. And yet you seem skeptical of this sort of new system where everyone wants to be an artist. I think it's very misleading. It's misguided. Why is that? Because it presumes that being an artist is so great. And it's not. (laughs) It's actually a tough job. If you're really in it, it means that you have to spend a lot of time thinking. You have to spend a lot of time looking and observing things. And again, patterns. You have to find patterns in society and forms and conversations. And then you have to find an art form to translate all of that to a stranger and to have it be powerful and to have it be useful to them. Oftentimes what I see is just someone saying, like, I'm just good at pretty pictures. And that's fine. Beauty is strong. Beauty is great. But there's a lot of beauty in the world. So why should we pay attention to your beauty? To have someone spend time with your work, you have to like say, like, I want to give you this. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to just flex. <laughs> you know, I want to give you something you can hold on to when you leave the space. And just like a peace of mind. I feel like what art I always like to do is give someone peace of mind. There's a lot of horror in the world. There's a lot of information and pain in that and trauma. I'd rather just give you something that you can, in the interior, that you can go back to and say, oh, that was nice. I wonder if this sort of light inside of you that blossomed into this career, if it kind of began in 2001, because it's the year you and your mother make a trip back to Nigeria. That was a significant trip. I think I got to see a side of my mother I had never seen. I got to go to where I was born, my hometown. That was really intense because, you know, I saw my house that was burned down and all of my cousin's houses and everyone else's houses was burned down. My school and all of these things that were so intimate to me and that were like completely strange and otherworldly. And just like you go to a museum with your mom in the very university where your parents met and you see an Ife head and it's a replica and you're like, whoa. (laughs) what is this thing? And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And I didn't know about Benin Kingdom or any of that. And my mom was like, this is art. You know, this is part of your heritage. And I I had no idea. I don't know, I came back from that trip really affected 
by what I saw and experienced. But that was also just a strange trip because I felt very American. How so? Just, you know, how obviously I talk, I couldn't speak the language. I, you know, was very much like, oh, what's that? Which is a very American thing to do to just be adventurous. And they're like, you can't just be out here. <laughs> like, I was like, let's go on an Okara. And my mom was like, Jesus Christ. That's what I meant by bratty. Everything she said not to do, I did. The trip was just, I just felt really like sad seeing my past and you know, like the burnt house stuff. Like, I remember that house so intimate, like the like corners of the house. Like, I have a mark on my forehead when I fell down the stairs. So, like, I was, like, looking forward to seeing the stairs. You know, no, stuff like that. Like, I remember we were, like, in the living room when I heard the Thriller album for the first time. And I don't remember, like, which room, like, you know what I mean? Like, what was in the room, but I remember being in a corner somewhere because I was scared of the voice. I think it was Vincent Price at the end. And I just, mm-hmm. like, huddled in, like, this corner because I was so scared of the voice. <laughs> That's what I mean. My memory is strange. And unreliable. Yeah. And yet here we are. <laughs> here we are. <laughs> revisiting some pieces. Mm-hmm. When you do fully accept the path of being an artist, and it, it seems like you make a clear decision. Yeah. In 2008, you graduate from the University of Alabama. As someone wrote, you had an initial adherence to ballpoint pens and monochromatic palette. Ooh, yeah. Not the kind of writing I would produce. <laughs> it's, you know. But I think accurate. Yeah. This is so awesome. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true, though, because, like, can I just say, though, obviously, you've had other people in the arts who've done these interviews. You notice how people talk about their creativity and then how art world people talk about mm-hmm. it. It's like dissertation. It's yes. like, why am I responding to this language? It makes no sense at all. I apologize to anyone who tries <laughs> to access this language because it's impossible. We can't even understand it and we're in it. You Look, know? we're doing the best we can. <laughs> exactly. Okay? You said of that time right after college, when I started this whole thing around 2009, It was just a means of making me not go crazy. Honestly, it was so immersive that I would never pay attention to the fact that I was homeless and I had no job and I was really depressed. Yeah, that was um, the crash. (laughs) That was a recession. You know, you come out with an arts degree (laughs) in the middle of a recession. Good luck. It's already good luck in general, but it was like, you know, and I think I worked at a law office as a runner. Tragic. Got fired exponentially after that. I mean, of course I did. I was like, I, I'm shit with authority. And also, like, I mean, they would be like, so you got to go to the courthouse. I said, do I? Again? I mean, I was just, I was terrible because I, I felt very disillusioned like a lot of people. I loved art, but I also knew that no one needed art right now. They needed a job. And I had gotten fired and I was too scared to tell my parents. And so I slept on the couch of a friend. It was a dark time. I was like, I weighed like 90 pounds. <laughs> it was stupid. My dad ended up finding me and he's like, we're getting you food. And he says it every time he sees me. He's like, I went home and I cried on the way after seeing you. He said something about like, I didn't work so hard to see my child like that in this country. We cried and it was a lot. As a parent, you don't want to see your child suffering. And also as a parent, you you work very hard and you help your kid get an education, which I was very fortunate to have. And just to see me that way, I think he saw that I was very unhappy. And it was around that time I moved back home and I started working on going to grad school. I can hear the guilt in yeah. your voice. Survivor's guilt is real. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's something I'm working on every day. I mean, I know how hard they worked. I, I remember, I mean, my dad slept on the floor. My parents come from another generation of just like, wow, like, how did you make it? You know, like, I look at their lives. And so when I have what I had, I don't really... I know there's degrees and there's levels to it. I, I, I'm very aware of that. And I try to be 
give myself perspective on it. Mm -hmm. So when I look at that time, it was very, very dark. But I also understand that my parents had it worse. And them seeing me that way was um, a wake-up call for me more than them. And everyone has that moment, you know, where you're like, okay, I I really love this. Like, Mm -hmm. I love this so much. And I'm going to find out a way to do it. And so grad school was the end. It was like, all right. If I can get a scholarship, which I was so fortunate to get, I can teach. I can still draw on my own time, but at least I can get health insurance and I can get a, a salary and stuff. And so that was why I went to grad school. It was not to become what I became. You went to grad school to get out of the hole that you were in. Exactly. What did that transformation look like? Dude, grad school from, what was it, 2010 to 2012 was trash. Garbage. The the conceptual thing was big. A lot of planks on the wall. I didn't know what was going on. A lot of performance art. I just felt very um, lost in that. And so I did ballpoint pen drawings of Black people. I was one of two two Black students of 54 grads coming in that year. It was me and another uh, sister, Sanaka. And she was from Panama. And we both did representational work in an age when no one was even touching that. So you can imagine the critiques we had. It was hard. I mean, I remember just feeling like I was working three jobs and keeping to myself. Just thinking, I don't know if I want to be this kind of artist. I don't want to be just kind of like, oh, you know, the theory, Latin language that no one talks like that. I I was also from the South. So I was like, you have to speak normal English to me because this sounds crazy. The situationalists are nice, but I also want to know about the Chicano movement. Why are we spending like three weeks on a situationalist walking through Paris, but like two days on the Chicano movement in this city? Like, you know, they didn't know how to talk about race. They didn't know how to talk about blackness. And I had to figure it out myself in my work. I had to learn the language of it, which is why my thesis was called Alphabet. I was literally learning a language of how I define blackness for me and how I wanted to continue with it, with that language. But the way I was treated by teachers, some of my fellow classmates, I was very fortunate to have friends who I'm still friends with now from that time. But I felt very isolated, and there was a lot of things that were said to me that, yeah, you couldn't say that shit now. Like? Why do you draw black people? Literally, that was a genuine question from a teacher. Like, why would you draw black people? And I'm like, it's the strangest thing to ask me. And I had to answer it in a critique and justify why there were black figures on the wall of my studio. How does one answer that? You don't. I mean, sadly, it's continued throughout my career. People often ask me in some form or fashion, why do we care about these black figures? Why are they black figures here? And it's like, I don't think that's a question I can answer. That's a question you need to answer for yourself. And was she wondering why there weren't more central white figures? Yeah, you know, it's that typical Toni Morrison thing. How insulting is this question? I have it right here. Come correct, Sam. Should we watch it? (laughs) This is Toni Morrison in an interview from 1998. You have in your writing certainly marginalized whites. Why are they of no particular interest to you, or seemingly no particular interest? Well, I was interested in another kind of literature that was not just confrontational, black versus white. I was really interested in black readership. For me, the allegory or the parallel is, is, is black music, which is as splendid and complicated and wonderful as it is because its audience was within its primary audience. The fact that it has become universal worldwide, anyone, everyone 
can play it and it has evolved is because it wasn't tampered with and editorialized within the community. So I wanted the literature that I wrote to be that way. I could just go straight to where the soil was, where the fertility was in this landscape. And also, I wanted to feel free not to have the white gaze in this place that was so precious to me, which is the work. And you will maintain this safe place for yourself, for your art? You don't think you will ever change and write books that incorporate white, white lives into them substantially? I have done. Mm. In, in a substantial paradise. way. You can't understand how powerfully racist that question is, can you? Because you could never ask a white author, when are you going to write about black people? Whether he did or not, or she did or not. Mm. Even the inquiry comes from a position of being in the center. And being used to being in the center. And being used to being in the center. Mm. And saying, you know, is it ever possible that you will enter the mainstream? It's inconceivable that where I already am is the mainstream. I mean, I, I'm very grateful to grad school, obviously. It gave me the tools to understand whiteness within art and the figuration and how to understand that. But I also was given time to develop my own thing. And I had amazing teachers. I had Ranu Makaji. I had Alison Smith. There were some great teachers, you know, who really were in my corner. Often they were women of color. Often they were queer women. So, you know, like Cheryl Dunyon. Like, there's so many. But, like, at the same time, it was like the institution, like so many were, like, didn't have the capacity for an expansive and generative blackness that just wasn't in their purview until, like, maybe very recently. And they had amazing alumni. But what I experienced there was alarming. You said, I had to go through that to get where I am now, which is a very freeing place where the black figures that I can make can be various. The work isn't limited to that history anymore. And I think it has to do with the time that we're in. Whereas before you had to represent blackness so much and you had to sacrifice a little bit of yourself to do that. Absolutely. It's such a strange thing to say because it's been said by so many creative black people throughout time you know Toni Morrison obviously famously is like this center the fact that you're saying that black womanhood and my voice in that center you would never think it various you would never think it expansive and generative like I said so I just knew it coming out of grad school that I was so not interested in pain I couldn't do it I couldn't do trauma (laughs) and reality in my work it was fantasy It was speculative and alternative futures, but that didn't mean it wasn't real. This is just a space where you maybe hadn't accessed in a while or didn't know you could access. And like the Black figuration I'm creating is, again, it's just a respite from the reality. You you know what the reality is as a Black person. I don't need to regurgitate that to you. I'm just giving you something else to think about and to feel like you could exist in this plane. And your Blackness is not an assault. It is not an apology. It is not a compromise. I just thought, like, what are the people we don't know yet? Yeah, there's reality, but every time you do reality with blackness, it's just, it's limiting. People tend to, like, stamp it and walk away. I can't tell you how many shows I've been in where it's, like, black portraiture today. I'm like, I can't do this. Whereas if you just say, 
there's these two guys in a garden. <laughs> and uh, they decided to have a picnic. Let's follow them for the day. It, you know what I mean? It, their blackness is not implicit in the title, but it's like it informs how they move through it. And it's so much more interesting. When you leave school, you say, the thing that infuriates me is that I can't be Elizabeth Payton. <laughs> painting and drawing people in my life who aren't famous and who have no significance besides my connection to them. But I draw them in this way where I'm full-on adorning these people and all the public has to do is digest them as pretty. You say that in 2012. And yet, I think this monograph is the promise, the actualization of, of that desire. It's so weird looking at that book right now. I originally wanted to call it Three Years. Because it was just three years of my life. But it was also just three years of dealing with what I said then in 2012. It was like, can I create Black characters who are just beautiful? And that's it. That Nothing bad happened to them. <laughs> nothing nothing um, to justify their Such a glory. low bar. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, it's like just the simplest premise. And you would be shocked at the response from that premise. Like the brief is... These two men fall in love. Their families are aristocratic. It's like any fantasy novel you can imagine from some Eurocentric view of things. But, it, you know, it was coming from that space. They weren't subjected to slavery, colonist views. They just come from these two families. And they have wealth of their own from those families. And in that, this whole story happens. I didn't think that that bar would be such a world. It, as low as that bar was, it was... It, took three years to explore it. And I never had a chance to do that with my work before in light of like Elizabeth Payton. I mean, there's a lot of my circle, if you will, in these characters. You know, my brothers are in there. My mom and dad are in there. <laughs> they're all over it. My friends, Joanna is in there. All of them, they're all in there. The specificity and the blackness and the beauty just enhanced the story better. It wasn't like an aside or a disclaimer. It just was like, no, it's just this is what makes it better. So on the website, you'll see the selections we've made together. Some of them are mine, some of them are yours. For some context, I want to read a little bit of writing that you wrote on the queerness of the work. There's a sense of threat with queerness still, most likely due to its unknowability in the mainstream understanding. It isn't regarded as fertile ground. It can only be a place of demise. Ironic, considering how much queerness has birthed and expanded movements beliefs, and helps shape spaces of inclusivity in the Black community, not just in America, but in the global Pan-African diaspora. I look at this work now, and this is a solid body of work. But the cost of that is in this book. You see what it took. And queerness had always been something I wanted to explore in my work, but I didn't know how to do it in a way that wasn't um, overwrought with my own ideas and blind spots around queerness. I wanted it to be something that surprised even me and left room for queerness to just be in the ether. It was just in the air of these pictures. You didn't even have to say it. It just was. I'm looking now at Newlyweds on Holiday, just one of my faves. And, you know, it's it's the two title, you know, the main characters. And they're wearing um, Hater Ackerman because <laughs> I was all about that when I started this. And you see different fashion. <laughs> I think there's like Valentino in there and like Duro. And this was like, how do I show these two men who are so confident and so self-possessed? And 
they're also kind of giddy that they just got married. So there's this little like pinky moment in the picture where they're just hands intertwined. And I remember doing that even in my studio and feeling such a thrill. Like, oh my God, I just drew that because I'd never done anything like that. And so it was like, oh, I'm really going to lean into this later (laughs) in like all these different scenes. Every character is fully comfortable in that queerness. I mean, even, you know, the different members, you know, there's always something that plays with presentation, plays with performativity, plays with being a couple, you know, who's allowed to be a couple with the last dance at the annual county gala. What a title. Good one. It's a good one. I also wanted it to feel very matter of fact, which is what the title of the first was. It's like a matter of fact. It's everything but that, but yet it is. It is a fact. I made it real for myself. It was like I had to see it for me. These are people you hadn't seen before? Not really, no. What kind of people are you talking about? Wealthy, queer Nigerians who do not care what you think of them at all, which is very specific. The experience that I've had of Nigerians in America and, of course, going back home is very much about presentation. You think politics of representation here is rough. I mean, there it's like, you know, I have tattoos. You know, I'm like, I've had so many aunties and uncles tell me that I am disgraceful in my presentation. So to have these characters who are very open and, you know, they have piercings and, you know, they dress rather unorthodox, I guess, and they're fine. They're protected in my world. I love people who take the reality and make it better. Not better in the sense of, like, we should all do this. It's like, it could be this. Like, the could be is so exciting to me. The should be sucks, but could be... Ooh, that's sexy. Like, that's a nice big world to get into. This whole book is could be. Your words are could be. Zadie Smith, in writing about this, said, if only. If only. (laughs) Are the two words. She has much more gravity (laughs) into this. (laughs) In looking at these opening chapters, uh, one and two, she writes, if only slavery had never happened. If only African families had never been broken and serial traumatized. Instead, the past 600 years of dispersion and displacement have been magically replaced by consolidation of wealth, of heritage, of privilege itself. You have to understand, when you leave your country at five, that's part of that displacement. I think why I made this was because I was like, I want to belong somewhere in Nigeria. I want that for me. Sounds very selfish now, but I think that's why I made this. I would love to live in this world. And what was such a joy and a gift was seeing other people say, I want to live there too. Like, we want to live there. Why doesn't this exist? And it was around a time, you know, it came out like Whitney Show was 2017. You know, Trump was in office, but it was a weird time for Black figuration. Suddenly there was a lot more of us, and it was exciting. And it was like, wow, look at all these different ways we can express ourselves. And this could be us. Why don't we? You know, the, the year of the return was around that same time where a bunch of people went to Ghana. A lot of Americans, African-Americans were like, no, why don't we go back to the continent? Why don't we reconnect to that? We are a part of that community. We're not separated. Slavery doesn't define this. We've always been there. So that was all kind of happening. And it was beautiful to witness that. It was beautiful to be a part of that conversation. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out 
how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism, and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point. The market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off. But also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. And this story that you're weaving together through four chapters, it's fascinating that the world you're depicting, it doesn't exist. This is representatives of state, which is all women who are politicians in Africa. Not to say that that doesn't exist. It's the could be, though. I don't want to shut it down. Like, it might not exist right now, but it could. 
there could be four women who represent different regions of a country. Yeah, I totally see that. And they all look fly as fuck. Like, I'm going to make them look like, yeah, she has her see-through legs. Why can't a woman wear thigh-high boots to work? She's still getting stuff done. It doesn't matter how she looks. This one is surveying the family seat. What does it mean to you? I just thought, wow, look at someone who looks at his own land. Like, all of that land is his. This is also a really interesting conversation about the could be. Why don't we own land? It's not just (laughs) with the contentious history of the U.S. in Africa. There's a lot of issues with land ownership all over the continent. Nigeria is no different. We're one of the most populated countries in the continent, Nigeria. But, like, when it comes to land ownership, a lot of it is is foreign-owned. And they own acres. I'm depicting this man who owns valleys and hills and, like, biodiversity and... It's like very manifest destiny. He's providing for his family through that. And the family is gaining so much wealth from that, which has been deprived of so many. But it doesn't mean that there haven't been Black families who have owned land. You know what I mean? I, I, I guess what I was just trying to do is to show that this is here. It's always been here. We have to just believe it in ourselves. And sometimes you have to see it, even if it's an illusion, even if it's a picture. It helps you feel like I have a wealth in me. It's there. It's a powerful feeling because I felt it in making it. After this show, I was like, you can't touch me. I was so on high. Like I was, sometimes I look at these pictures and I was like, that's right. When you're making this work and you're on high like that, walk us through what a typical day of yours looks like. I usually sketch a lot. So a lot of it is just like I have a sketch in my head that I just want to get down. And after maybe one or two or three sketches, and I'm like, this one looks like remotely usable, then I'll start on that drawing. And every series, quote unquote, is is like a diary for me. It's like, oh, that's what you were going through at that time. I can see that in the marks. I can see that in the compositional decisions you made. They're very immediate. And now I'm much more like, no, you can take your time. When you're in the room... Do people come by during the day? Do you not see anyone? I'm always alone. I don't have assistance. I don't have anything. And it's just me alone in the room playing music, sometimes just sitting in my chair and looking at something for a really, really long time, trying to figure out what to do next, trying to figure out what the picture wants to do. Because you can't force it. That's when the work is bad, is when you're trying to impose yourself into it. It's like, okay, what's? I made these decisions. Let me solve this puzzle. And then the picture also has its own ideas. And that's really when it's so powerful, when you encounter art that just speaks to you on a level that it's its own autonomous entity. It's not this artist flexing. It's like this exists in another realm. I like that. And I try to push my work into that place. And also in doing that, I open myself up to me not quite getting it there, but that stumble makes the work, (laughs) you know? It's like I'm the work that I found that people respond to the most of mine are the ones where I was very much figuring out. It was like a battle to make. And usually it's when I'm in this weird trance and I become completely subsumed in the act, that activity of the making, that I forget where I am. It's like I disappear. It's the most beautiful experience. And so whenever I present the work in a show, I always say, disappear into the picture. Like, it's really beautiful. Like, I'm trying to invite people to have that experience as well. You can be a creator in thinking. The act of creating is in the thinking. It's in the looking. And because you learn so much about yourself, your proclivities, your ideas and principles, they come up when you see something and you're triggered by an image. And 
you should focus on that. Figure out why you have these ideas, why you feel that way, because that's indicative of something. It's indicative of your humanity. And yet you quite literally do a disappearing act in this monograph as the role of the private secretary. What was the purpose behind this? I think initially I was really nervous about how my work was being regarded at that point when I started in 2016. There was a lot of discussions about my Nigerianness that I didn't understand. So I had to try and find that. And so I also needed to remove myself, again, my expectations from that as well. So what the private secretary affords is this non-space. And I exist as a sort of communications liaison between the work and the viewer. It's no longer like this authorship. It's more of just like, I'm part of this story and you can be too. Like, you know, I'm figuring it out with you. Well then, why don't we figure this one out together? Here's a piece called By Her Design. I love this one. I mean, it's kind of self-portraity, but I'm that stereotype. I cannot swim. And I remember when I drew this, I was like, I haven't drawn anyone at the time in water. And I knew why, because I have an aversion to it. So I was like, let's put a woman in short shorts just out here with the boat. She's not only comfortable, she's posing for you as if she's like, oh, I own these waters. I own everything. And this was also a really fun picture to make in terms of the skin, the luminosity of the skin, luminosity of the clothing, the landscape outside of it. It's a very rich picture. It's a very wealthy picture. Did creating these bright universes brighten your disposition? I mean, they made me less jaded, I feel. After doing Whitney, I was very hopeful. I really was. And then something happened around 2018 that made me go, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Because the white gaze, as Toni Morrison says, it's it's a sneaky, sneaky thing. Because when this started getting very popular, because this is also when my success took off, that means more white patrons, white collectors were purchasing this work, were acquiring this work. Part of the success is who purchases it, who acquires this work. More and more white people were acquiring it. It's fine. You know, it's, it's helping me sustain my practice. It's also putting me in rooms and having conversations that are deeply uncomfortable. What are those conversations like? Like someone walking up to you in a party and saying, hi, I own you, like as an opener. You know, not as much anymore, but that was, you know, it was 2017, 2018. It was a different time. People were just like, you know, <laughs> or can you like stand right next to your picture? Like it's you, you know, like, you know, or they'll say like, they'll point to a character in the story and say, oh, that's you, right? I mean, this one is obviously that, but there was stuff like that. I'm looking at an unclaimed estates now, which is a picture of, modeled after my brother. And they say, who's that? That's you, right? And it would be the strangest thing. It was almost like they wanted to pin it down. They didn't want to give it that expansive space that it was existing in. They wanted to close it up and restrict it. And because I'm dressing them in very nice clothing and putting them in very nice environs, they recognize that in their own environs, in their own clothing. And so they thought, oh, these are just like us. They want to be us. It's not what I was trying to do. I didn't want to make these characters be like white people. I just wanted them to exist separate from you. You're not even in the pictures. You're not here. But somehow that still happened. There was still this injection of the white gaze into my work, and I couldn't stop it. It was so just 
demoralizing after a while. Like, I just felt like, God, we can't escape this shit at all. Like, I'm creating whole worlds out of you, separate from y'all, and you still figure out a way to make it yours or about you. It's not only that there was the white gaze intruding on this, but there was also white ownership. Yeah, and how that reads, you know. Can I ask you, when that person came up to you, how do you sit with that? How do you respond? It's really difficult to answer. I think because... There are people who will say, like, you should be so grateful you're successful, that kind of energy. And then there's also just, like, I owe you nothing, though. <laughs> like, I mean, I understand this system, but I am not grateful. They make it a sport, some of these collectors, when they get your work. They're like, oh, I just got your piece or I own you. And it's like, good for you. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to say about that. I just made a picture. Some artists are involved with that. I'm not. I don't want to know who purchases my work because what I've had— unfortunately, is that you start to see that you become an investment. It's a different conversation than I'm having in my studio. And so when I see someone say, I own you, they're talking about an investment. They're not talking about what I'm trying to do with the pictures. Every successful artist you know, that's what it is. It's because some egregiously wealthy person or persons have purchased their work and put it in auction and did all this other stuff. And it's something that no one talks about in the art world. I don't understand why I'm successful because I didn't really go into it thinking strategically about the art world. I was thinking, I want to create a space where I can breathe. And I hope other people can have that space too. When you have collectors of a certain socioeconomic perspective see this work and describe it, I just knew right away. They were like, oh, it's so great. So like all the stuff that we do and what we like, we just put black people in them and it solves everything. And it's like, no, it's not quite what I was doing. I started to see that happen with a lot of young artists coming out in figuration, black figuration. I just felt so felt so bad because it's like, that's not what they're interested in, but it's selling. So I'm like, I get it. I get that you want to put everybody in Gucci loafers. Like, I get that you want everyone to have really nice, like, interiors and clothes and, and they're just, everyone is an ennui. It's amazing how much black ennui is happening. It's kind of awesome, but also we do stuff though, right? We eat and we walk and we we write things, you know? I didn't know that we all just lounge all the time. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm a little disturbed how much lounging pictures there are or something that just kind of deals with this, like, natural blackness. It's just fabulous, which it is, but it's like we, we could do something from there. You know, there's stuff we can go to through that. Because then I feel like the posing black beauty becomes that I own you. Because if you're not doing anything but lying down, that makes you all the more easy to be consumed, all the more easy to be owned. Because <laughs> you're just you're not doing anything. You're just being looked at. But you make a concerted effort <laughs> to not know who's buying your work. I try to, but, you know, these people make themselves known. It makes you feel like you're not a person, you know? It makes you feel like you're just a product. And you're, you're pushing a product all the time and producing and so I try to keep a distance from my own mental state. Like, I, I don't want to feel like I'm an assembly line of work for people to consume. And I am alone in my studio. I'm making these pictures on the grace of God. You know what I mean? I'm just lucky that they look good and they get out. If I go into a mindset thinking I'm creating a product and it has to be consistent, I'm in trouble. I don't know if I can sustain that practice. I, I like seeing mistakes in work. I like seeing the artist is learning through the work. So if you're going to go into my work, if you want to invest in it, maybe this is, this is the moment to draw the line in the sand here, you're not going to see the same stuff from me. And I think that's a good 
thing. I think you want to see an artist evolve and try things and change. I just go into my studio and I'm like, all right, let's think for a bit. What do people need right now? And it's not going to like solve world peace. It's not going to help you with COVID. You know, it's just, it's going to give you peace of mind. It's going to give you tools that you can pull from, from inside of you. It's going to give you a place to go. Before we close the chapter on these pieces, what are the pieces in here that you feel like people could need right now? Oh, one of my favorites is Picnic on the Grounds. It's a mother and daughter. I Even now when I look at this, I love it so much. I just feel so good <laughs> when I see This is it. my favorite one. Yeah, it's yeah. just something about like seeing a mother and child unencumbered, all this greenery around them, nature, and free. And so that one in the drawing room is really fun. I love that. I love that one. It's on page, what, 136. It's just the way he's looking out and the reflection behind him in the mirror is his lover and just that playful look he has. And there's like a detailed shot of it that I just, ah, I love so much. Again, he's fully in his world, in the picture. And nothing about his blackness is encumbering him. Nothing about him being in that space is stifling him. He's just there looking at his man's butt and like, mm, that's mine. There's a lot of stuff I did for the Palermo Manifesta that I really loved. The Crown and House Post in Congress. Those were the first time I leaned fully into having no figures in there, but there is Black presence. How do you create a space where there's the presence of Blackness, but you don't see Black people? And that's what I felt that picture was. I love this picture because it's my heritage, my Yoruban heritage in there. And then there's just like foliage all around. And I mean, this whole book is a testament to a period of time that I'm very grateful that I had to explore a lot of things that I felt I was lacking. And from the process of making this, I felt very full finishing it. I felt like I could do anything I wanted after this. As this book came to be, you said, not too long ago, I came across this quote by the author Edwidge Dantica. She said, the immigrant artist shares with all other artists the desire to interpret and possibly remake his or her own world. It floored me, you said. Through further research, I found the crux of her argument that the life of an immigrant, the lands, cultures, principles, and beliefs we traverse is a methodology, a form of art making. Everything about that quote, even now, being in New York, coming out of the train into Midtown in my old studio, and that energy I felt and that hunger I felt, but also completely like how much the city impressed on me. This feeling of like, you have to conquer the world or something. And even then I, I didn't feel comfortable. Even though I was at the epicenter of, you know, all of it in the center of the city, like there was this feeling of just like, this isn't me. Like, I don't want to be the center of the thing. I just want to be in the room with everybody. And I want as many people in the room as possible because I want to hear all the stories. And so that's kind of what I do in these roles. This is what I do in my work is like I create it in order to understand all of that, that tapestry. Then I step back from it and I'm saying, okay, here it is, guys. <laughs> and what do you think? Let's discuss, you know, and that's really what I think I do with the work. It's just this city makes you feel like you can conquer it all, you know, which is amazing. But I also feel like the city is, um, it's a perspective too. 
because that's how I've been conditioned. That's how I survived. That's how I've lived my life. That's how, why I create what I do. I don't want to have one perspective or a singularity of vision. That's so terrifying to me. And singularity of vision comes from knowing exactly where you are and where you, maybe not knowing where you are is what gives you all of these varying perspectives. And it's a good thing. At least that's what Edgewidge, that's why I felt from that. It's not bad. You're creating art by the many, many places you travel. You know, through that, you're seeing all these different ideas, different ways of being. And from that, it collates into your work. We've been so hopeful about this text. And yet, it seems to me that you're not particularly hopeful about it three years removed. I just saw what it became when capitalism took over. You know, this thing about, like, being consumed, commodified. You know, I saw my work spoken about in a way that was really alarming. And it was just that shows you how much that work was needed and how we need to mine that now. Like, yes, we exist. Black people exist in wealthy spaces. They exist in natural spaces, beautiful spaces that are devoid of all the bad stuff. But then it became this question of, is representation enough? That was what I was asking myself when I left this. Is this enough? Just seeing ourselves in these spaces, is that enough? I don't know. And I had to answer that question for myself. Did you find an answer? I did, in a countervailing theory. That was it. <laughs> that was how I found it. This series was a series I did in 2019, or started in 2019, and finished in January of 2020. It was that question, is representation enough? And I thought the only way I could do that was to flip the script, which was the whole project. And so there's no color. It's all monochromatic power is is matriarchal. It's women only, which is not new, but it was in this world. Same sex or same gender relations is the norm. And heterosexuality is aberrant. And there is a manufactured class of persons who are made by these women warriors. And in the <laughs> in the world building that I was doing, I was answering that question that what is oppression? What does it really mean? And if we keep getting distracted with representation, you're never going to get how insidious power is, how insidious oppression is. It's really nice to see us looking really nice and fully ourselves in spaces and beautiful, but everyone is capable of being an oppressor. There's a feeling I get, it's too simple, it's too easy just to say Black liberation, blah, which is such a project. <laughs> it's still happening. Like, Black people matter. We just matter. Okay, we're there. All right, <laughs> not that we're equal. We just matter. We're trying to get that part. But then it gets to a place where you're like, all right, equity, when we get there, are you going to have this feeling, which is totally justified, that I want to be like a white man. I want to be that. And I get that. I get that feeling that people have right now, like, no, fuck it. I don't even want to try to be good anymore. I want to be like Bezos. I want to be like, you know, Elon Musk. And it's like, why though? They're not good. We can be so much better and it's hard. But creating this story, seeing how oppression and power can seep into everything. It justifies everything and becomes this principled belief. You're so in it because you see yourself in these characters. You don't see how bad it is. I just think that just because representation is there, like, yeah, we're having a bunch of people getting to really high power positions. Are they doing anything in those positions? Are they moving the needle for everybody else? 
Some are, which is exciting, but most of the time it's just, it's a trope. It's, um, it's a token. You say, power is corrupting. I'm interested in power as a collective, not as power as a person. I'm not interested in power over people, no matter who's wielding it. Absolutely. I think whenever you can see someone who's really heady about power and it's like, likes to delegate others, I always like distance myself from that. I'm like, I'm not interested in that kind of power. Even when it's a person of color wielding it. Just anybody. Like, that's what I'm saying. Representation's a trap. Like, get out of it. Bad people do bad things. It doesn't matter how they look. It doesn't matter what they come from. But that's really hard to say when we're all just trying to get to equality. <laughs> like, we're all just trying to get there first. And I get that. But we should be thinking about these things now. Because what happens when we do get there? I want to believe we get there. I want to. And I know we will. But we have to think now about what that looks like. So many people got caught up in them being in the spotlight and being the ones who get all the energy and all the the attention or whatever. And it's like, no, it's a collective thing. I've always felt that my art is about being in a conversation. I don't that's why I thought art star is so weird to me. I'm like, ugh. No, we're a group here talking about this stuff. All of us. We don't need art stars. We need conversations. And yet, it's not like you're not in vogue. <laughs> I don't know what it means, though. I feel like it's a distraction. I'm not giving you grief. No, I understand. Yeah, I it's, it's a curious thing because I think we're in alignment. And yet I would never say, oh, don't do an interview in Vogue. That would be insane. You, you've worked incredibly hard. Yeah. It will further expand your work and introduce it to people who would never see it. Yeah, but also the questions in Vogue are not the questions that need to be answered. That's also part of the thing, right? It's like if I do this very amazing platform that I have to talk about my work, but all the questions are about like, what's it like to be Black? <laughs> it's justify why Black people are here. That's been my entire career in terms of press. Like, why do we care about these Black people here? And it's like, what? And then, you know, you spend your entire energy just trying to exist, which is what we're in right now. And no one's talking about what we build with Blackness, what we build with, you know, BIPOC movements, what we build with indigenous people. Like, I'm just sick of the whole, like, isolating thing and categorizing us in a way that is so distracting. Because all of this is to distract from the fact that it costs too much to live. <laughs> so you're banking on a prayer, basically, when you make work, and there's a lot of overhead regardless. If young people are struggling, I totally understand that, and I totally feel... Yeah, do what you need to do. It's a hustle culture. But I just feel like in my work, I just want to show that there are ways to be still intellectually and creatively rigorous. But I understand the costs as well. And there's a nobility, I guess, which is a very modern notion that the artist alone in the studio working and not working to produce for a specific space or arena is really beautiful sentiment. But in a capitalistic society, it's just not possible. In any major city, you have to find out ways of networking, finding the right collectors, finding the right institutions or curators. And that's a full-time job in itself. And so the focus will inexorably go away from the work and the art making into that. To bring it full circle, in that Instagram post that I started with, you wrote, a lot of exciting things are happening right now, but through the varying conversations I've been having with dear ones, I sense we're not alone in wondering what the fuck is happening for real 
And how did the stakes get so high? To live a fulfilling life, do we really have to give so much of ourselves? Is money all the content that matters? What does clout chasing and power hoarding signify? How long do we go on sleep-deprived and malnourished? If everyone needs to be a billionaire in order to survive, to have choices, to feel safe, then we are in trouble. You just hear young people just saying, like, I want to be a billionaire, I want to be a billionaire. And I get it. But God, I would never wish that for a young person to feel like they have to be a billionaire, to feel like they can be safe, to feel like they have options to do stuff. That's crazy. What are we doing? There are more billionaires now. And I, I've been very blessed. I really want to lean into this, Sam, because this is serious. Like, I'm very, very blessed to have the life that I have, to be successful. But I don't want to be even a millionaire. Like, I'm good. Like, I feel like my bar was so low. I'm shocked I'm even able to pay my taxes. I sense that there's a lot of people right now who don't see the wealth within them. They don't see that they're fine. That we got to fight for policies. We got to fight for things that just make life easier for people. We got to think collectively. Because when you help the ones around you and the ones you don't even see behind you, you will feel so, so good. And it's like what colonialism does, what imperialism does, makes you feel like it's each her own and you're not. And that's where I'm at and the kind of work I want to make. Let's get out of that. You said, I didn't expect to be here, but I'm thinking now about you 10 years ago and you talked about being homeless. You talked about not really seeing a way forward. Your father coming to find you, you going to grad school. And when you finish grad school, you do an interview. <laughs> and they asked, which writers do you like? And you said, I remember the first time I read a Zadie Smith book, who I adore. I think she's the female literary equivalent of me as an artist because she's always questioning herself. And that's something I do when I work. My style is very much a reflection of people I read. If I were ever to meet any of these people, I think I would probably cry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. And as we leave, I wanted to sit with the very portrait you made of Zadie Smith. I know you've made people cry in this program. I refuse to cry. <laughs> That whole thing was like a, I thought I was like not like alive. Like when I got the news, I remember reading White Teeth at 16 and being blown away and just being like, wow, this feels so relatable. This feels so real. And not that, you know, other literature hadn't done that. It was just something like the collective, you know, it wasn't just one person. It was like a neighborhood. It reminded me of Berkeley, you know, Albany, where I grew up. It reminded me of Huntsville. Like I've always lived in odd places where it was like a collective. It was just a lot of people from different places. Just the luck of the draw of my life. And so to read a book that felt like that. Like, I was like, oh, I recognize that completely. Like, this neighbor is from China, and this person is from Turkey, and, this, you know, and that was the neighborhood. That's just how you, you know, and that's London. That's all these, you know, metropolitan places. But I also grew up with that from Ife all the way now. And you don't think you're going to meet a hero, but to meet her and to have her write what she wrote about my work and just that was enough. Just seeing that in Vogue was like, oh my God, 
I'm happy. I'm good. And then getting that letter from one of my favorite, not my favorite, but one of the coolest institutions I know, which is the National Portrait Gallery. That just was like too much to bear. I think I lost my shit when I got that letter. I, I just told Joe, I was like, this is dumb. I don't even know anymore. I don't understand my life. You couldn't make this up. If I had told that to Toy in, you know, 2012, I mean, I'd just come back from the past and just slap the shit out of her. Like, you ain't ready. So let me just give you this right now, because this shit's coming. You know, we she came to my studio. We were chilling, smoked some cigarettes. It was super cool. And then I took some photos, and I told her to chill. Because she was nervous, too. That was what made it so wild. And I just asked her one question. I said, what do you want? You've been to this space. You've been to this museum. What do you want? And she said, I've never seen an Afro painted. And that whole thing. I said, well, that's true. Let's do it. Let's <laughs> paint an Afro. That was it. It was like that and just like show like Black London, you know? And that's what I did. I wanted to make her look so strong and so self-possessed in her element. The whole time I was doing it, I just felt very, uh, it was emotional. But looking at that portrait, I mean, it's like... It's a lot. It's a lot to look at that thing. Uh, Why is it so emotional? I just, I never would have thought in my wildest dreams that I would meet her, let alone <laughs> create her portrait. Like, are you kidding? I still can't believe it. She's such an amazing figure, an amazing mind, and a beautiful person. To be a part of her story in some way through this was really an honor. It was like genuinely, it's like going back to that time when you... You really thought you weren't shit selling your drawings on paper for 200 bucks just just to pay for food, man. Like, that was a life. And then to this, you know, like, you just kind of like, okay, okay. I just keep going. I just keep making pictures and telling stories and being really grateful for being here, not for people acquiring me <laughs> and my work, but grateful that I get to spend time making things and exploring ideas and learning from that. Because that's what I do. I just kind of learn. I get to be a student for the rest of my life. And I have to learn a new language. Picture making is a language. And so I learn through making stuff, which is scary. My style, for instance, has changed since I started. And I know now that whatever comes next is going to be a whole new toying that I have to contend with. I don't know, for some reason, I've kind of kept her down or I've kept her, you know, she's not important. Now it's like, no, who are who is she? <laughs> who is this person, you know? I think that's what I'm wondering. Well, so much of my life has been you are your function. That is why you're important. You are your function. That's what I meant by what's useful. And now I'm starting to ask the question of like, no, really, who are you? <laughs> like, that might be a lifelong thing. I'm okay with that. But it took a while to get here. Well, then... As a time capsule, let me put it back to you. Who are you today? What matters to you in this moment? The only thing that comes to mind right now is the beauty of quiet and slowness. I think the world is very fast, too fast, too overwhelming. And to be alive is to force a slowness and don't fill it with stuff. I keep thinking of that Japanese philosophy of ma has been like my whole life <laughs> lately. Ma is this idea that the space between objects, the space between people, the space between forms is pregnant with meaning. That empty space, quote unquote, empty in a Western sense, but in a Japanese philosophy is full. It's a presence. And so I think about 
the quiet as a presence that I want to lean into. It's pregnant with meaning. I may not understand that meaning, but it's important and I need to sit with it. Even when I want to feel it, even when I'm uncomfortable with the silence, even when I feel like I'm not being productive or I'm not doing something that I need to do right now, I need to sit down <laughs> and let it happen and wash over me because it means that I, I'm beyond my function in a society and I'm just a person here right now. Toyin, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Sam. our show. Special thanks this week to Johanna Bellarado Samuels, Rebecca Chang, Brandon Fouché, Calvin Reedy, and the Jack Shaman Gallery. I'd also like to thank Toyin for coming on the podcast. To learn more about her, visit our website at talkeasypod.com. There, we've included links to her monograph, her upcoming shows, her personal website, and a whole lot more. I'd encourage you to seek out her work if you haven't already. If you enjoyed today's talk with Toyin, you'd probably enjoy past conversations with people like Jenea Future Khan, Holland Taylor, Joel Meyerowitz, Tyler Mitchell, Representative Ilhan Omar, and Claudia Rankin. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editors are Caitlin Dryden, Eve Gershon, and Joshua Siegel. Our engineer is Tim Moore, taping out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Callie Syringus. The show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Julie Delpy. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. 
Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.